From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. C. difficile is the most common cause of infections in hospitals. Of people who become infected, 25% recur, which can be life-threatening for people whose health is already compromised. C. difficile is well understood clinically, but how to predict, treat, and prevent its recurrence is unclear. Dr. Georg Gerber is using sequencing of the microbiome to better identify and predict recurrence of C. difficile with new data collection techniques and computational methods. Dr. Georg Gerber is co-director of the Massachusetts Host Microbiome Center, assistant professor of pathology at Harvard Medical School, and associate pathologist at the Brigham and Women's Hospital Center for Advanced Molecular Diagnostics. Dr. Gerber, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, hi. So um, you're working on a study trying to predict who will get a recurring C. difficile infection. Can you tell us who your patients are and what are the aims of the study? Yeah, sure. So just sort of to start with the aims of the study, uh, as you we had talked about at some point, C. diff is a most common uh, cause of infection in, in the hospital. Um, about 25% of people that get the initial infection, they will recur with it. And so we're very interested in can we predict who's going to recur really ultimately to prioritize them for treatment. So for this initial study, the patient population, it's primarily Brigham Women's Hospital, but we also have uh, some involved with Faulkner Hospital and Newton Wellesley Hospital for recruiting the patients. And the goal, this is a relatively sort of small study, so the goal is to have sort of as clean as possible patient population. So these are people who are relatively healthy other than having the initial C. diff infection. So we ex- exclude things like inflammatory bowel disease, immunosuppression due to cancer, and that type of thing. And how's the study being funded? So this is from a program at the Brigham called Precision Medicine, which is a donor-funded initiative. And it funds a variety of things, but part of it is they funded some um, primary research projects that are focused around this idea of precision medicine. And this really falls into that category is you know, can we look at people who might recur and can we actually predict that and then give them a more precise and tailored treatment? Okay. Could you talk a little bit more about how um, how this, what you just mentioned, this fits into that precision medicine idea? How does this study, um, and maybe if you could give us a little background on what this idea of precision medicine is, how does this study fit into that? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's a great question. I think this is something you know, it's a term that's come up in the last, yeah, I guess, around five years, and you know, people still working out exactly what it means. I think it it means different things um, to different groups, but you know, the the idea is that you you have a population, and you may be trying to predict what's going to happen to that population to pre-anticipate in a preventative way, um, or you may have someone coming in with a disease, um, but you you want to, in some ways, manage and predict that process. Is a lot of what I see. Um, going on in precision medicine. And so this project really fits into this idea that, okay, we have, you know, if you take 100 people and they have CGF, we know on average 25 of, that, 25 of them are going to recur. 
but we don't know who. And it turns out there are actually fairly effective treatments for recurrent CDF. There are new antibiotics. There's also fecal transplant, which we'll probably talk about <laughs> uh, subsequently, and a bunch of other uh, modalities that are coming online. But they're expensive. They have side effects. I mean, you don't want to treat those 75 people who aren't going to get it. And so the precision part comes in sort of, can I identify those 25 people, give them what they need so they don't recur? And you're trying to do that when they first present in the hospital rather than having them come back with a recurrence? Like you can prevent that recurrence if you feel that they have a high likelihood of recurring? That's right. So you, you want to prevent the recurrence. And you know part of the, the question of the study is how soon can we predict uh, who's going to recur? You know, it may not be right when they come into treatment. We may have to have them come back a week, two weeks. You know, that's that's part of what we're evaluating. But it's very costly, and also, you know, there's a huge amount of morbidity if someone actually does recur with the infection. So you you want to prevent that happening right at the onset if you can. Hmm. And um, so C diff is a pretty serious infection. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about C diff. And uh, you mentioned the the morbidity when somebody recurs, um, meaning, you know, the severity of the infection, maybe you could talk about the initial infection, why that's a problem, and then why the recurrence is a pro- is an even bigger problem. Yeah, sure. So CDF is an, an interesting phenomena. Actually, since antibiotics first came online, which is about in the 50s, it was observed that people that had a lot of antibiotics would have these diarrheal episodes. Um, they didn't know why. And that was really kind of ferreted out around the, the 1980s with implicating C. diff as the primary cause of this. And so the, the usual course is you take antibiotics for something. Uh, classically, you know, it might be you, you have a, a tooth abscess or get a dental implant, something like that, where you get clindamycin is one of the, the big offenders. Um, and then you come down with this diarrheal infection. And it's not like, you know, just garden variety diarrhea. It's very bad diarrhea. Patients typically are, you know, having to sit on the toilet for, you know, many, many, many times a day, hours a day, um, very, very debilitating disease. If you're a healthy adult, you know, you're probably going to come out of this um, okay, assuming you don't recur. But for elderly population, people immunocompromised, it can be much more severe. And so certainly there is mortality. There's about 15,000 um, deaths a year from C. diff. And you can also get complications. I mean, it can literally it can destroy your colon. Um, there's a, a phenomena where the, the colon becomes so inflamed and so damaged that um, you know, the patient can either die or you have to take it out. Um, so you can get these very severe um, complications. So that's kind of the primary episode, which is, is bad enough. But, yeah, in people who recur, and that's, you know, we're, we're still, and I have a, you know, other research programs where we're trying to understand more about the biology of that, but... Um, we, we don't completely understand why people recur and that whole phenomena, but the, the bottom line is if you recur once, you're more likely to keep recurring. So there's something going on um, probably in the patients, but also with the C. diff strain. The impact for the patient is huge. So you know, there are people that will have this disease for months and months, even years. And as I said, it's a thing where they're, they're sitting on the toilet most of the day, they can't, you know, mass fermental weight loss, you have vitamin deficiencies, all these things that go along with, with having this just chronic debilitating diarrhea. And so let's get back to the study itself. Um, and let's talk about the kind of data you're collecting. And you're also looking at the microbiome and using microbiome sequencing. So maybe you can tell us what kind of data you're collecting, how you're collecting it, and um, 
how you are trying to use that data to identify or to target these these yeah. Uh, patients. Yeah, yeah. So that's a great. I mean, so we'll we'll start with sort of the the gross part of the study, literally <laughs> and figuratively. Um, so you know what we do is we try and identify patients as quickly as possible. We have a, an interesting system at the hospital where we get alerted to when someone tests in, so lab tests positive for C diff, and then we kind of run over and try and consent those patients. And the goal is to follow them for eight weeks. So we try and get a stool sample every week um, from from each patient in the study. As you said, we're, we're working with microbiome or we want to get microbiome data. There's a whole protocol. Um, for getting that. But basically what it amounts to is that we need to get the sample frozen, and then we have a system for patients shipping the samples to us. From the microbiome perspective, um, you know, the, the initial part of the study is sort of to ask which microbes may be present that could be related to re- the recurrence risk. And so for that, as you mentioned, um, we use sequencing, which I can go into, you know, a little bit more about that modality. Um, the next data type that we're, we're collecting, and we just got additional funding from the Precision Medicine Program as well as Catalyst, um, is to look at the metabolomic profile, which is a, another modality that's very, very interesting, particularly for C. diff infection. Hmm. So tell us a little bit more about the microbiome sequencing and what um, we've talked a bit about on the podcast about microbiome research, but how are you using this, um, or what kind of work are you doing around this? Yeah, so, you know, in, in the microbiome field, sequencing and, you know, looking at nucleic acids has been a huge enabling piece of it. Um, there's certainly many of the, the ideas in microbiome have actually been a lot around since, again, probably since the 1950s, even earlier. But really ena- what enabled that was um, high-throughput sequencing and, and the cost efficiency with, with that. So there's really kind of two main ways that people sequence right now. Um, the first would be called shotgun metagenomics, where you take all of the microbial DNA in that sample, just break it up and sequence it. The second approach is looking at essentially a marker gene, which is the 16S ribosomal RNA um, gene. And it's, it's a marker, um, if you will, that is going to be, it's highly conserved, so it's present in every bacterial species, but you get enough diversity into it that you can identify more or less what's there. The, the gap with that is the resolution of what you can identify is, is somewhat limited. So you may be able to get down to sort of the, the genus level, typically, but not necessarily species and certainly not the particular strains of bugs that are there. Um, whereas with the metagenomic approach, you can go deeper, but it's much, much more expensive right now. Um, so for our study, we did use 16S mm-hmm. in part because we're looking at patients over time, and so we need multiple samples. Um, we just did not have the funding to do the shotgun metagenomics. Okay, so um, so you're talking what you're talking about is there's a trade-off between sort of quality and cost, and you're so you have a lower cost but also somewhat lower quality. So how does that affect what you're able to determine from the study? Yeah, so you know, one of the ways we designed this study was to look longitudinally, um, which is quite important because there's a lot of temporal variability in the microbiome. Mm-hmm. You also have a process as the uh, patient is, you know, they're coming, they're treated with antibiotics for the infection. So as they're coming off antibiotics, their microbiome isn't static. So it's important to look at that process and change over time as well. 
So, you know, to my mind, um, the longitudinal studies give you a lot more information than just looking at a slice in time. But with that comes, of course, you're going to have multiple samples, and so it drives up the cost. Okay. So from, from my perspective, it's, it's worth it to go with the 16S, which in some ways is lower resolution, because we have the longitudinal information. And in part, you know, if we see something in there, we see it multiple times or can see it multiple times, that gives us back some of that resolution and also gives us additional information. So could you give me an example of what you might find um, based on the techniques that you're using? You talked about being able to identify genus, but maybe not species. So what would you be able to find that would lead you in a direction of being able to make a determination about what role certain bacteria play in the recurrence? Yeah, so yeah, it's interesting with the resolution because it's, it's not a uniform thing. So there are some areas uh, in the phylogenetic tree when you're looking at microbes where they're quite different from other things, and you actually can cleanly get to the species level. Um, there's others where it's going to be somewhere in between, and others where it's going to be very difficult um, because you have many things that are very close. And so part of it has to do with diversity in this particular gene we're looking at. Part of it has to do with diversity in the tree of life. <laughs> So interestingly, some of the organisms we care most about, uh, we can get a bit better, better resolution on because they're in these sort of more isolated areas in the phylogenetic tree. Um, so there's, there's a fair amount actually we can, in this particular study, get out of 16S, and that's why we're more confident in using this technology. Okay, so, so sort of like once you, get, once you start going down the branches of the tree, this branch only leads to three or four different sub-branches, so you're pretty confident that those are what you're looking at. Right, because there's some areas where you just, you don't have that much diversity in the human gut. They may mm -hmm. be elsewhere in the environment, ever, but you, you, you know in the gut it may be two or three species, and you actually can get down to it with, with 16S. Mm -hmm. So is there anything else about the sequencing or the data collection that we should talk about? Well, it's probably worth talking about the metabolomic data. Yes, you yes. Want to go into that now because, yeah. yeah, so I think Traditionally, as I said, a lot of the microbiome has, has been based on sequencing data. That is interesting because you can identify what's there. You can also potentially identify genes, but this sort of just gives you names of things. Mm -hmm. And the question becomes, what are their end activities that might be affecting whatever they're doing? Right. And so with microbes, you know, a lot of their life is eating things and excreting things. Um, they're, they're relatively simple on a certain level. Mm -hmm. And so looking at their metabolic outputs um, can be incredibly informative. And particularly in the case of C. diff, where, so, you know, it, it's been recognized for a long time, as I said, that when you have a antibiotic treatment, this makes you very susceptible to the infection. Similarly, there's been these recent studies where you put back in, so you give these fecal transplants, and you actually are very efficacious at treating C. diff. And so clearly, which microbes are there are playing a big role. And there's a lot of hypothesis that the way those microbes are working is somehow competing with C. diff for something. And so you would you know, a, a decent hypothesis is that's metabolic competition because that's a lot of what microbes are doing. So the question is somehow, how are they altering the gut metabolic environment to make that less hospitable for C. diff? Mm. So like, are they eating all the food 
that C diff, so C diff can't get any food or is that, am I on the right track there? Yeah. So one hypothesis, yes, would be nutritional is, okay, there's some carbon source that they can eat faster than C diff. Maybe they're also it's a vitamin that they're, they're consuming that C diff needs. Um, they're also though, interesting the microbes use metabolites in a sense for it signaling in a sense where they will sense a metabolite and this makes them do something else differently. Mm -hmm. So CDF is a pathogen because it makes a toxin that, that kills off epithelial cells. And so the, and the one, epithelial cells are the cells that line the organs like the colon. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in the case of the gut, what's happening is literally CDF makes this toxin and then your cells in the gut are being killed off by it. That's why you get this, eventually you can get this really bad diarrhea. Mm -hmm. okay. um, and so one uh, hypothesis, and, and this is, has been observed to some extent, is, um, you know, how CDF is active metabolically affects its ability to produce the toxin. If you think of it, 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 you know, very interesting fact, a large number of people are walking around colonized with C. diff and they don't get sick. <laughs> um, so there's something going on that's just changing that environment. And if you think about the, the microbes as sort of what their lifestyle is, they become pathogenic. They'll, they'll make a toxin, which is very metabolically expensive for them, but they'll do that when they're stressed. And so they're in an environment they're sensing, I don't have food, I don't have what I need. So I need to elaborate this toxin, get basically get food and, and get what I need. And so the idea is the other organisms are doing something metabolically changing that environment, which is making C. diff behave like a pathogen, secrete toxin, be bad, or just sort of sit there and hang out and, and not do anything. Hmm. Interesting. So most of the time, C. diff is not doing anything. It's being held in check, and it's only when... But we don't know why it gets stressed or why it starts producing the toxin. Yeah, so, I mean, that's... We, we actually have another project um, that's that's also been funded out of the precision medicine which involves it's an animal model and we we have gotten it down um, to the metabolites and and directly what's going on um, but in the human study we we, we don't know that mm -hmm. that is still the the operative question is you know what what the commensals are doing to you know make cdf not toxigenic or when they go away why it decides it needs to be a pathogen can you talk about how new computational methods can help to accelerate these kind of really important discoveries? Yeah. So, I mean, broadly, a lot of the next generation sequencing revolution that goes way beyond microbiome, but obviously looking at, at human genome, cancer and things like that, have been completely dependent on, on computational techniques and technologies. Um, the, all of our sequencing techniques that are really in, in regular use are dependent on short reads. And so this gives us a fragmented picture of what's going on and you have to use the computer to, to go back in there and reassemble what's going on. Um, so that's sort of on the core bioinformatics front, that's been absolutely essential for all these high throughput technologies. The, the next phase we're starting to see broadly, um, sort of in the biomedical arena, is is machine learning. Mm -hmm. And the idea being that you can start to collect now with hyperthropomonalities lots and lots of samples. And you're asking a question, okay, can we predict something from those samples? So like in our study, we're trying to predict CDF recurrence, but you might also be, you know, want to predict someone's going to have cancer or what their lifespan is, all these things. And can you take all this information that's very rich, very complicated, and get signal out of it? 
And that's where machine learning is, is starting to come in in biomedical area, which we had, you know, it's been around in other fields, but relatively new in biomedicine. And so machine learning can pick up sort of the small differences that wouldn't be detectable otherwise is, um, you know, to making or making sense out of large amounts of data, like looking for patterns. Yeah, I, I view it a lot as the latter is what it's good at is where you have a very complex type of input. So it could be lots and lots of samples or lots and lots of things we're measuring like genes or, or microbes. But there's also complexity to it. So there, these things could be interacting in complicated mm. ways. So you might need, you know, 10 times A and 300 times B and them interacting in some way. And so there's there's complexity in figuring how the parts interact, which you can't just like sit down and look at a print out of this and figure that out. Mm. Is this informing treatment or does this go beyond treatment to kind of prophylaxis like okay, we think you're going to get this, so start doing this now, and you won't get it. Yeah, so it's an interesting question. Um, and, you know, I think that people would, would like to do both, and there's very compelling reasons to do both. Um, part of where things have been driven have to do with factors that have nothing to do with science. And so how, how things are funded and, mm -hmm. you know, preventative medicine in general, what the interest is in this versus a treatment. So I think the, the first tranche of things, there has been a lot of emphasis put on treatment. And so in the, you know, the cancer space, which is the, the other thing I, I do as a pathologist, um, you know, we are now using next generation sequencing to say which uh, treatment we should use on a patient that it sort of matches the mutation to the treatment modality of the tumor. Um, what we'd love to get to, though, is, you know, you're able to look at the sample, predict who's going to get disease a year out, five years out, whatever, and then do something so they never get it. I think, yeah, everybody would like to, you know, take a blood test and then get a list of, okay, you're going to get this disease in this year. And then, but that's, um, I mean, how that's far off, wouldn't you say? Or... Well, you know, I think it sounds like science fiction almost. I think there's aspects of it that are science fiction. And, you know, there there's some diseases that are very, very complicated because you have an environmental component, you have genetic mm -hmm. component, you have a lot of just random component. Um, but not everything. I mean, there's some where we, we have pretty clear causation or we could probably find pretty clear causation um, and, you know, make those predictions pretty accurately and, and pretty far ahead of time. Yeah, it's going to depend in part on the disease, but the other piece of it, and I think this is where people are excited in the machine learning world, is, you know, if you could collect enough information on a patient, could that truly be enough to predict even a complex disease like, say, onset, you know, who's going to get type 2 diabetes and when? Um, could we actually figure that if we're monitoring someone's diet, if we're looking at their daily body weight, we're looking at physiological variables, blood labs, et cetera. And I think, you know, no one really knows at this stage, but that is the kind of the dream. An interesting thing with machine learning right now is that a lot of the, the best methods, the ones that perform well, you know, if you look at how Siri works for recognizing voice or uh, techniques for Google that, that can do image recognition, they use so-called black box methods meaning that there's a very complicated mathematical function that you give it lots of data and it learns that function, but it doesn't give me the ability to look inside that and understand how it's working. It's, it's just way too complicated and unstructured. This might be reasonable for those type of applications, but in biomedical applications, you probably want to know why things are happening. 
Right. And for research and sort of, you know, a lot of research is based on peer review and everybody, you know, checking the methods and seeing and replicating it. So you'd want to be able to take that function, replicate it in a different population and see if it still holds true. True, but I mean that you could conceivably do empirically if mm-hmm. if the goal were just okay. I'm going to reproduce the result. But the other question, discovery, is you know have I learned some general principle mm-hmm. here? And I agree with you that those two things are not independent because if it's a general principle, it's probably going to be much more likely to reproduce in another population, right? Mm-hmm. So I think those two things, um, you know, are arguments against why you you kind of don't want the black box. Right. The other thing is, is kind of sociologically, if you're thinking of this as going to become a diagnostic that physicians might use, physicians are pretty allergic to just, I put it into a black box, get an answer. I mean, they want to understand yeah, why you got that answer. Right? <laughs> and the patient wants to, right. you know, can I explain why and how we got the answer? So, you know, those are sort of all pieces why this black box mentality isn't exactly what we want in, in biomedical research. Mm-hmm. So, Part of what the Catalyst program is, we're developing new algorithms that um, have the, the, the same power as these black box methods, but are human interpretable. And so they literally produce rules that say, you know, if this particular microbe or metabolite is above a certain concentration over a certain time window, and perhaps uh, you need another one that's doing something else in combination, that increases your risk of recurrence by X percent. So you can actually look at what the predictor is and figure out how it's making the prediction. Hmm. And so how is that, I guess, how is that better than, you know, you, you explained the kind of sociological reasoning why you'd want to get away from the black box, but what, how else is that advantageous to uh, a physician or a researcher? Well, from the research perspective, it goes back to one of your earlier questions, which, okay, I, you know, have predictors of who's going to recur. What does it tell me about the microbes? What does it tell me what's going on? And from our perspective, we ultimately want to figure out scientifically what, what microbes are inhibiting, how they're inhibiting, but ultimately from that, you know, produce a treatment. So we, we don't just want something where I throw a bunch of variables into a black box as you have some percent of chance of getting C. diff again. Um, I'd actually like to know what the causative factors are. And so that's really the piece that I'm most excited about what this is. You know, with enough data, it can eventually get us enough data and, and also doing our animal experience, other modalities, you know, can get us to causality in the system. And then from there, you can develop a treatment. Right. So how will this research contribute to uh, treatment for recurrent C. diff? One goal with the research really is just to predict who's going to recur. And so you could view it as biomarkers where we might, they may be metabolites, they may also be microbes where we know their nucleic sequences, nucleic acid uh, sequences, and you could put those in. There's there's some predictor would say, okay, this patient is this percent chance going to recur, this other one unlikely to recur. The other piece of it, though, is looking at, into what those predictors are, and that's very much enabled by our work with Catalyst with developing these machine learning tools where we can get human interpretability. And so the idea is, okay, if we can discover from this which microbes and which metabolites are predictive of recurrence, that enables us to sort of trace back and figure out, okay, those microbes, if, if present, um, may actually enable you to not get recurrent disease. So there's kind of, from the treatment end with CDF, there's a few different modalities people are looking at. One of them I mentioned is this fecal microbiome transplant where you just take 
uh, stool from a healthy donor, and you basically put this, now it's usually in pill form, um, the patient takes it, and the idea is it's somehow going to repopulate their gut with something. Um, the trouble with that is we don't specifically know which bugs are involved. There also are safety risks. We're, we're taking a kind of uncharacterized biologic and in, in putting into patients. And there's also efficacy questions. You know, the initial studies showed this was very efficacious, but those were in pretty restricted populations. And sort of to your point of generalizability and reproducibility, as people are going out to be more and you know diverse populations, this may not have the the right the, the same cure rate. And so, you know, I think that the dream with sort of the precision therapeutic is to say, I'm going to identify particular microbes or even metabolites that are essential for fighting off this CDF. So it either, you know, never takes hold or, or, you know, wouldn't even be able to colonize well. And so that's part of the problem we have um, with precision medicine on our animal models. We've actually identified specific bacteria that are protective in mice against the CGF challenge, and we've even gotten it down to which metabolites are protective um, in, in this model. And so then you can develop, uh, so how do you treat them, how do you then treat the patient with that information? Well, so the idea is, and you know, this is, you know, what we're unsure of, is, it, you know, is there going to be sort of a universal set of bacteria metabolites that would work for all people? Um, in which case, um, if it's metabolites, then, you know, you figure out it's, that's more of sort of a classic pharmaceutical thing where it's some small molecule. Um, if it's bugs, you would have some means of giving this patient probably in a pill. People even talk about sort of yogurt formulation. And, you know, they would get the bugs to repopulate, recolonize, uh, possibly after antibiotics or even proceeding as prophylactic and be, you know, resistant to the, the infection. Dr. Gerber, thank you very much for coming in. It was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Yeah, it was great coming here and uh, interesting questions. Yeah, fun to do. Next time on Think Research. So we know a great deal about some causes of infertility, but then there's a good proportion of couples who aren't able to get pregnant and we're really not sure why. Dr. Caroline Mitchell considers how the vaginal microbiome impacts IVF success rates. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.